Welcome to 30 for 30 Plus, presented by the Mini Countrymen. My name is Jody Avergan. This is where we have a bit of a bonus conversation about 30 for 30s, and this season of 30 for 30 podcasts, we are doing them about our podcast documentaries. So on Tuesdays, we give you an episode, and then we bring you this, the bonus conversation with a little behind the scenes and some discussion of the larger themes. Here to talk about the episode that just published, The Lights of Wrigleyville, are Elizabeth Meister and Dan Collison, also known as Long Haul Productions, who produced and reported this piece. Dan, Elizabeth, thanks for doing this, and congratulations on your piece coming out. Thank you, Jody. Thank you. Let's start with the question that we're kicking off all of these conversations with, which is, what is one thing that you thought going into this story that then kind of changed over the course of, of making it? When all this went down, starting in the early 80s, I wasn't living in Chicago or near Chicago. I was on the West Coast, so I never thought it was such a big deal. I liked night games. I had never seen Wrigley Field, so I didn't really appreciate that people lived so close to the park. So I just thought it was, I kind of thought it was a NIMBY issue, you know, not in my backyard. But there are little NIMBY issues and big NIMBY issues. And I kind of found out that this was a big one. It was really a political battle and it was a legal battle. And that's what really made it much more interesting to me and how we kind of got drawn into this story that, you know, this was a large corporation, the Tribune Company, had a lot of money, a lot of influence against this scrappy group of neighbors who just wanted to have a say in what was going to happen because lights were going to have a dramatic impact on their way of life. I grew up in the Chicago area and I went to games during this period. And I was really, you know, I was young. I think I was 13 when all this was going down, but I was aware of what was happening. And later, uh, after college, I came to actually live in Lakeview, Wrigleyville, a couple blocks from the park. And, you know, I experienced the, the joys of baseball in a neighborhood firsthand in that twice I parked my car on a game day. And this was when Sammy Sosa was going for the home run record. So it was completely mm -hmm. crazy in the neighborhood at that point. And twice my car was hit by Cub fans who were basically trying to, to squirrel into a little parking space behind me. And that was during day games. So, you know, I got it. I, I totally going back, looking at this neighborhood and seeing the proximity, you know, the park to the to the neighbors, it totally makes sense that they would have been that upset about this. But I think what both of you are getting at is that, yes, there is, you know, the my parking spot is threatened and there is the, is someone going to pee in my bushes, which are totally reasonable things for a resident to be worried about. But, you know, we, t we talked about this during the editing process a little bit, too, about, you know, what was the fight really about? And I wonder if you feel like, as I came to feel over the course of editing this piece, that there was an element also of just like fighting for maybe a bygone era, uh, in certainly in baseball, you know, of a neighborhood park, day baseball, very community friendly, something kind of like almost intentionally protected from corporate interests. Um, and then maybe even to, you know, wax a little more poetic, but just sort of a larger bygone era, um, that kind of day baseball and the Cubs in whatever particular role they play in our imagination sort of represented. Uh, Studs Terkel talks about it. You know, you, you, you can call a friend and say, hey, it's noon. The Cubs are in town. Let's go out and catch the L and go and have a beer and sit in the bleachers and, you know, soak up the sun. 
you know, I, um, I, I don't think people quite appreciate what it meant generation after generation after generation. And, you know, people talk about it uh, in, in the story that, um, you know, this was a, this was a way of life uh, mm-hmm. to come out. It was a it was a ritual. Somebody referred to it as like mass. One of the characters in the story, uh, Stuart Shea, he said something that was really interesting was that they hadn't tamed us yet. And they felt like revolutionaries and rebels because they could, you know, they were out in the bleachers and doing it differently. And I think, you know, that a lot of people felt as though the lights were taming Wrigley Field and making it really just like any other park and taking away the uniqueness, which they were so proud of. So do you have sympathy for that kind of argument? I mean, I, you know, I, I do a little, but I also, there's part of me, it's like, Look, ba- the history of baseball has always been the history of like old timers complaining <laughs> about changes <laughs> to the sport. I appreciate that argument. I I don't that doesn't win the day for me and you know, I think what really really sells it for me is the is the argument, really the constitutional argument that, you know, the Tribune company owns this piece of land, they can do with it what they want and the neighbors can go to hell. And the neighbors say as, as Beth Murphy of Murphy's Bleacher says. You're moving right next to a stadium. What do you expect? And I would say back, you bought a ballpark in a neighborhood. So what do you expect? It goes both ways. You know, that that's go, transcends baseball and, and the purity of the game to a real quality of life issue and a real uh, a legal, you know, constitutional argument. I mean, ultimately, I feel like the most important thing about this story was that this was a situation in which people felt that they weren't being heard, that they weren't being respected, that they had no control. I mean, Beth Murphy, Mm -hmm. it's one of my favorite pieces in the in the story. She talks about, you know, she says people just want to be heard. And, you know, we've Dan and I have worked together for for quite a while now. And that has been a consistent theme in so much of the work that we've done together that that when there are these conflicts, so often it is, you know, no one taking the time to really hear out the little guy in these situations. And ultimately it blows up and it becomes a much bigger deal than it ever should have in the first place. I mean, it's a cautionary tale for what's going on in our country right now, right? <laughs> that that really to me, if if the if the Cubs and the Trib had been a little bit more sympathetic if they'd come to the neighborhood and said, hey, we want to do this. We know it's going to impact you, but here's a plan for parking. And here's some toilets we're going to put up. You know, if they had put some thought into it and heard people out, I don't think this would have happened. Yeah. And and as the piece points out, that kind of was the turning point where they started to just realize and embrace uh, Wrigley Field as a sort of special place, which it's like, it took you that long to realize that Wrigley Field right. was a special place. Um, right. So uh, one other thing we're, we're doing in these in these bonus episodes is, is it's a chance to play some tape that didn't make it into the final piece. Um, you know, every piece has to make some hard decisions. So is there any piece of tape that you love that for whatever reason did not end up uh, in the final episode that people heard on Tuesday? For me, it's the um, scene... When the lights have been installed, and, and it's August 8th, 1988, it's the first night game at Wrigley Field. It's a spectacle. It's it's this huge deal. You know, celebrities are there. And of course, not of course, but interestingly, it rained in the fourth inning. And it didn't just rain. It really, really came down. Torrential rain. So this is a scene that um, 
that didn't make it into the piece for for various reasons, but um, it's fun that we get to hear it right now. But you know, we're in the dugout, and I mean, it is a flood. It's been a long time since I've seen it rain that hard. And somebody just jokingly, I think it was either Les Lancaster or Al Nipper said, let's go, let's slide on the tarp. So away we went. They came out and just belly flopped and just whew, scooted along on the tarp. Maddox, Lancaster, and Jody Davis, did their diving onto the tarp, Luganus-like, you know? Honestly, there was a puddle out at second base that was 12, 13 inches deep out there. I mean, you could just about dive. Jim Fry fined us $500. Our GM, Jim Fry, his nickname was Preacher Man, and Preacher Man was pissed. I mean, he chewed their asses. There might be one of those uh, tarp spikes underneath and you stab yourself or get hurt. I figure it was $125 a slide. I slid four times. It was fun. I love that image of them going into the locker room and getting chewed out. And, you know, to know that one of these guys that did this was Greg Maddox, who, I mean, he's he's a Hall of Fame pitcher. Um, and I will also just tell listeners, you know, if you haven't after listening to this episode already gone online and watched videos of this night, you should because... I mean, when you say torrential rain, like we tried to capture it in the piece, but it is amazing. And this tarp is like, yeah, there's a foot of water and as they're sliding through, there's a wake going everywhere and so forth. But um, one thing we didn't do in this piece, um, you know, except for maybe at the very end, we sort of hint at it. But, you know, we don't advance this piece to today. Um, we don't point out that the Cubs have new ownership, that they've now won a World Series, obviously. Wrigleyville has sort of changed in many ways, both as a as a neighborhood and as a a uh, place that is tied in a business sense to uh, the Cubs organization and the ballpark. So um, you want to talk a little bit about kind of how you view that neighborhood now and whether there are elements <laughs> of this fight uh, still kind of there in, you know, in the Cubs uh, in 2017? Well, I'm very grumpy about <laughs> it, actually. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I should... I should listen to the characters in this story and accept change and, and be glad that as a lifelong Cubs fan, we won the World Series. You know, I should, I should be happy about that. And I am very, very happy about that. But I hate that big scoreboard, that mm-hmm. huge monstrosity in left field. I hate it. I can't not see that thing. And, you know, there are other changes around the ballpark, there's, um, it's called the 1060 plan. Um, it's the Ricketts family who, who now owns the Cubs. And, and the 1060 plan is this comprehensive effort to rehab the park and provide amenities for, for fans um, around the park. And one of the amenities, I'm putting air quotes. air quotes here, one of the amenities is this sort of fake little park that sits <laughs> where... <laughs> Where you you can you can hear you can hear the the grizzled old Cubs fan in my voice, right? Let um, me jump in here because I will say now I think that I think there is a larger um, sort of point here that that I've been to Wrigley Field. I went for the first time last year during their World Series run, and I was blown away and totally charmed. And I think that you know it is worth saying that for people who aren't Cubs fans, that when you compare Wrigley Field now to Wrigley Field before, then yes, there is some you know some real conversation to be had. But when you compare, I still contend that if you compare Wrigley Field to almost any other ballpark, it still really is that special place. And now, of course, the question is, where is that line that it's creeping towards that it, that where it tips? And then, as you said, Elizabeth, it's just another ballpark. But I would say that it's still kind of well short of that line. 
You know, you know what I think it is, and and this is this is another thing I felt consistently as we worked on this story. You know, you think about your life, and I think you know maybe a hundred years ago, people had their places of worship that they sort of continued to go to throughout their life, and you know people did make that comparison to Rick, that it was like a place of worship. You know, people had institutions that were consistent through their entire life, but you know at this point in our country, in our culture, in the way we live. There are very, very, very few places that are consistently there from when you were a kid, you know, through your teenage mm-hmm. years, through your college years, you know, as you get older. And Wrigley, Wrigley has been that place for so many people. You know, they went as kids. They loved day baseball or even now, you know, they just loved going to Wrigley. And it, it's been consistent through all of their lives. So any little change is really, really going to be difficult for a lot of folks. It's and you know, for me in the scoreboard, I just can't let go of that. Um, someday I will. But maybe someday. if you win a World Series again. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's a, <laughs> well, it's a what we need to do is make it, we need to we need to have you next go report a piece on like like the Tampa Dome, and then afterwards you'll come back and and realize how special <laughs> even the the new scoreboard at Wrigley Field is. Um, so. Okay, let's start to wrap up, and um, I'm just curious if there's one little tidbit or one little quote or just one little sort of fact that you will remember, you know, 10 years from now, if you don't remember anything else in this piece and reporting this piece, it's going to kind of stick with you. And I will say that one of mine is the idea that in 1984, Major League Baseball was going to force the Chicago Cubs to play their World Series games in St. Louis. When I learned that over the course of helping you produce this piece, it just blew my mind. Uh, but I was wondering if each of you could just quickly talk about kind of one little thing that's going to stick with you. The thing the thing that stuck with me from our research was um, the legacy of Bill Vack. And as a, you know, as a Cubs fan growing up, I never paid any attention to the White Sox other than to diss the White Sox. Mm-hmm. You know, and Bill Vack at the time was uh, working with the Sox on the South Side so I really, you know, I didn't really know about what he had done in baseball. I didn't, I had no idea that he had been so, so involved with the Cubs, especially early on. You know, I didn't know that he was responsible for the scoreboard, the beautiful, yeah. we're talking the beautiful scoreboard at beautiful Wrigley Field. Yeah. I kind of fell in love with Bill Vec too, doing research on this and ran across this quote, which was actually in print. It didn't make it into the piece, but I want to, it's a good way to end maybe. Yeah. It's, um... Vex saying, the scent of suntan oil, broiled hot dogs, and spilled beer create a wondrous feeling of euphoria, and feeling that neither crowds, hard benches, long ticket lines, nor the endless trek to distant toilets can diminish. The bleachers aren't just concrete and steel. They're a state of mind, a way of life, the best of summer. Well, that's a great way to end this. That's a lovely quote. Uh, um, Okay, so Dan and Elizabeth of Long Haul, thank you so much for doing this, and congratulations again on this piece. Thanks, and go Cubs. We were uh, really happy that we, we had a chance to do this. Okay, that brings us to the end of the episode. Now, one quick note, if you happen to be listening to this from Chicago, we are doing an event on Thursday, December 14th in the evening 
at the Cubby Bear Bar in Wrigleyville, where we will be discussing more of this episode. Rick Sutcliffe is going to be there. Beth Murphy from Murphy's Bleachers is going to be there. And Representative Mike Quigley is going to be there. And I'm told that a bunch of members of CUBS are going to show up as well. So it should be fun if you're in Chicago, December 14th at the Cubby Bear. There is a link to more information on our website, 30for30podcast.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with more 30 for 30.